Whoops, wrong music. Much better. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. That little musical mix-up at the beginning was just my way of demonstrating that although this is not the Twilight Zone, it certainly feels like a Twilight Zone. It's not unheard of for a supernatural or science fiction episode to appear in Alfred Hitchcock, but it is uncommon. Still, if you think this is an episode that was somehow slipped in behind Hitchcock's back, you would be mistaken, because Alfred Hitchcock himself directed this episode. Not only that, but he was nominated for a 1956 Emmy in the Best Director Film Series category, specifically for this episode. He unfortunately lost to Nat Hyken of The Phil Silver Show. Okay, so maybe you're thinking that you can make comparisons on occasion between The Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but Rod Serling would never make that connection. Then here he is in his intro to the Night Gallery episode, Since Aunt Ada Came to Stay. For those of you who've never met me, you might call me the undernourished Alfred Hitchcock. The great British craftsman and I do share something in common, an interest in the oddball. A predilection toward the bizarre. And this place is nothing if it isn't bizarre, by virtue of the paintings you see hanging around me. In any event, this episode deals with doubles. Doppelgangers. Specifically one doppelganger, belonging to a Mr. Albert Pelham. Good evening. Due to circumstances beyond our control, tragedy will not strike tonight. I'm dreadfully sorry. Perhaps some other time. However, I have just witnessed a sneak preview of this evening's story, and I found it simply frightening. Sometimes death is not the worst that can befall a man, and I don't refer to torture or any type of violence. I mean the quiet little insidious devices that can drive a man out of his mind, like putting bubble gum in someone's coat pocket. Tonight's little frolic is called The Case of Mr. Pelham. That's where the introduction ends on my copy of the episode. But according to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Hitchcock continues with, It will follow in a moment after our announcer explains about tonight's secret word. It's something you find around the house. If you can't find it, I suggest you buy some. If that joke eludes you, it's because you've never watched The Groucho Marx Show you bet your life. Welcome, welcome for the DeSoto Plymouth dealer. Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you find around the house. I think the contestants actually did say the secret word in that episode, which I believe was food. Any secret word to this episode, I think, would be a lot more sinister. So here's the case of Mr. Pelham, first broadcast on December 4th, 1955, starring Tom Ewell, Teleplay by Francis Cockrell, based on a story by Anthony Armstrong, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. There may be a number of you out there who have never heard of Tom Ewell, 
but I'm pretty sure that most people in 1955 would have heard of him because he'd just been in a hit movie that was based on a hit Broadway play for which he had won a Tony Award and a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor. He was born Samuel Ewell Tompkins in Owensboro, Kentucky. His family expected him to follow in their footsteps as either a lawyer or a whiskey or tobacco dealer, but instead he headed into acting. He started in Summerstock in 1928 with Don Amici. Then he moved to New York and he enrolled in the Actors Studio. He made his Broadway debut in 1934 and his film debut in 1940. Then he served in the Navy in World War II. After the war, he achieved a measure of acclaim in the film Adam's Rib that was in 1949. But then in 1952, he joined the Broadway production of The Seven-Year Itch as Richard Sherman. He played the part more than 900 times over three years, and that, of course, is where he won his Tony and his Golden Globe Awards. In 1955, the same year as this episode, he starred in the film of The Seven-Year Itch, opposite, of course, Marilyn Monroe. Here's the most famous scene from that movie. Didn't you just love the picture? I did. But I just felt so sorry for the creature at the end. Sorry for the creature? Why'd you want him to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking, but he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection, you know, sense of being loved and needed and wanted. That's a very interesting point of view. <laughs> Ooh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? Isn't it delicious? Sort of cools the ankles, doesn't it? Well, what do you think would be fun to do now? I don't know. It's getting pretty late. It's not that late. The thing is, I have this big day tomorrow. I really have to get to sleep. What's the big day tomorrow? Tomorrow I'm on television. You remember I told you about it? The Dazzle Den Hour? Oh, here comes another one. Tell me, Dazzle Dent toothpaste, it's funny. You know, I don't think I ever tried it. <laughs> you should. It's excellent toothpaste. Is it? Oh, yes. I use it myself. Oh, then you do recommend it. I mean, off the record, between friends. Definitely. It costs only a few pennies more than ordinary toothpaste, but a recent survey shows that 8 out of 10 oral hygiene... Now you sound like a commercial again. If I believed every commercial I heard. You can believe this one. Every word of it. What's that you say on the program? He'll never know because I stay kissing sweet the new Dazzle Dent way. <laughs> now, really. It's true. I'll prove it to you. Well? My faith in the integrity of American advertising is somewhat restored. You see? However, before I go to all the trouble of switching brands, I want to make absolutely certain. The iconic part of that scene, of course, is when Marilyn is standing on top of these subway vents and the passage of the train raises her dress up. But I also like the opening of that scene with her sympathy for the creature. That's the same sort of sympathy that Guillermo del Toro had that prompted him to make The Shape of Water. But that is not my favorite moment in The Seven-Year Itch. This is. You get out of here, and you tell Helen if she sent you to get a divorce. A divorce? I absolutely refuse. <laughs> Helen didn't send me for a divorce. She sent me for Ricky's paddle. I'll fight it in every court in the country. Because I can explain everything. The stairs, the cinnamon toast, the blonde in the kitchen. Now, wait a minute, Dickie boy. Let's just take it easy. What blonde in the kitchen? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Maybe it's Marilyn Monroe. I love self-reflexive moments like that. It's like the scene in His Girl Friday, 
where Cary Grant tells someone that they'll recognize Bruce, who is played by Ralph Bellamy, because he looks like that movie star Ralph Bellamy. Now, of course, Tom Ewell's career didn't end with The Seven-Year Itch or with this episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In 1956, he was in The Girl Can't Help It, opposite Jane Mansfield. He was also in the U.S. premiere of Waiting for Godot, opposite Burt Lahr. For one year, 1960 to 1961, he had his own television show, The Tom Ewell Show. I haven't been able to find any clips from that show, but that's its opening music playing in the background. The gimmick of the show is that Tom is the lone male in a household of women. His wife, three daughters, and his mother-in-law. The first episode, entitled Tom Cuts Off the Credit, also featured Raymond Bailey, with whom Tom will be spending some time in this Hitchcock episode. Of his later work, he is probably best known as retired policeman Billy Truman in the TV series Beretta. Tom retired from acting in the mid-80s, and he died in 1994 at the age of 85. He was survived by his 105-year-old mother, who lived to be 109 years old. Now, what about our episode? Well, it starts innocuously enough. Albert Pelham walks into the dining room of the club of which he is a member, and he approaches the bartender. Have you seen Dr. Harley today? Not yet. But it's still a little early for him. Here he comes now. The usual, right? Hello, Dr. Harley. Oh, hello. Uh, Pelham. Oh, yes, of course. Hello, Pelham. How are you? I. Could you have lunch with me today, Dr. Harley? Well, I... I'd rather appreciate it if you could. I'd rather need to, to talk to you. About some friend with a psychosis? No, it's not a friend. It's myself. Well, thanks very much, Pelham. I'd be delighted to lunch with you. Thanks, Ray. Whew. Well, shall we sit down? Oh, yes. How about this? Fine, fine. Note that Dr. Harley, who is clearly a psychiatrist, is sort of unclear on who Pelham is, even though they're both members of this club. So Pelham is the sort of man that is easily overlooked. Note also that Dr. Harley seems a little reluctant to lunch with Pelham until Pelham actually says, I want to talk about myself. So while Pelham may be the sort of person that's easily overlooked, he also seems to be the type that deals with things with honesty and integrity. Now, Dr. Harley is played by Raymond Bailey, whom we've seen before. He was Ed Johnson in the last Hitchcock-directed episode, Breakdown. We'll see him again in episode 28, Portrait of Jocelyn. All right, so the two men need to find a table. Pelham has just said, How about this? And he points directly at the camera. The two men walk towards the camera, which tracks back until we see a table there, and they sit. But what that really does is it puts them right in our lap. So we are at the table with Pelham and Dr. Harley as Pelham starts to open up. In the background, there's a waiter, there's the bartender. They're all doing their business, but they're not keyed into what's going on at the table with Pelham at all. Only we are. So the first thing we need to do is learn about Albert Pelham. The exposition's pretty easy here. He tells the doctor, and therefore he tells us. You don't know too much about me, I suppose, and there's really not much to know. I have my own little company, Albert Pelham Investments. I'm single, have an apartment on East 63rd with one servant, Peterson. I have no deep attachments, no 
demanding relationships. No responsibilities. Nothing at all unusual about me, really, until... Well, I should start at the beginning, I suppose. The first... The first indication was only about two weeks ago. I was leaving my office building in the evening, and an acquaintance, his offices are in the same building as mine, said something about seeing me at the garden the night before at the fights. He was just in passing, you know, and he was hurrying and had gone on before I could question him, although I attached no importance to it at the time. But I hadn't been at the garden the night before. In fact, I never go to fights. Note how Tom Ewell messes up his line. He fumbles over the word importance, and Hitchcock lets it go. Now, maybe it's because they have a two-day shooting schedule, and Hitchcock didn't think it was worth dealing with. On the other hand, he may have decided that it showed Pelham's increased anxiety, and he left it in. Note also that now we have a time frame. Pelham tells us that the whole thing started two weeks ago. And it's innocent enough, whoever looked like Mr. Pelham has gone to the fights. The Pelham never goes to the fights. So at least to start, this is not somebody trying to take over Pelham's life. Pelham continues with his story. He points at a table across the way where the next incident happened. The camera moves to show that table. We get all sorts of nice, lovely detail lending a verisimilitude to this. We find out the guys who are at the table right now are Manning and his father. Then we move into a flashback. Same camera angle, same table. The focus blurs temporarily to bring us into the flashback. Now Pelham and another man are sitting in the exact same chairs that Manning and his father sat in, in a nice little transition. The details that lend verisimilitude continue. We learn that the man sitting with Pelham in the flashback is Mr. Hartley from Detroit, and Pelham is handling an estate that Mr. Hartley inherited. None of this will come up again or be of any importance in the episode at all. While they're talking, they notice a fellow named Tom Mason, and they gesture him over. Oh, Tom, could you come here a moment, please? I'd like you to meet Mr. Hartley of Detroit. This is Tom Mason. I'm glad to see we're on speaking terms again. What? What do you mean? The day before yesterday. You cut me dead right out here at the corner. Really? I'm dreadfully sorry. I must not have seen you. Oh, you saw me, all right. Looked me right in the eye. When I said, hello, pal, you simply walked past. It's pretty intense concentration, old man. Careful you don't get yourself run over one day. Day before yesterday, you say? What time? Oh, two-ish. Not guilty. I was in Philadelphia the day before yesterday. Didn't get back till 6.30. You may think you were in Philadelphia, but actually you were right out there on the corner. Or else you have a double to end all doubles, pal. So the infiltration of the double increases just a bit. He's now in an area that is part of Mr. Pelham's orbit. He's not at the fights. He's right outside the club. But he still has not become Pelham because he doesn't recognize Tom Mason. And he doesn't acknowledge when he's called Pell. It reminds me of the invasion of the body snatchers, when the body has to fully form and become the double. Tom Mason was played by an actor named Kirby Smith. He only has 11 credits in IMDb, the first being this Hitchcock episode, the last being a pirate in a TV movie version of Peter Pan in 1960. I can't find out any other information about him, and we will not be seeing him again. The next incident involves cigarettes. You know, Harry, I don't remember ordering those cigarettes at all. 
fact, I suspect someone's playing a joke on me, for I don't even recall being here at all last night. That uh, might just possibly be it, wouldn't you say? Thank you, Mr. Pelham, but... Oh, no, sir, you were here. You could check with Mr. Mason, you were playing with him. I'm afraid that wouldn't help. If it's a joke, he's probably behind it. Well, if it wasn't you, sir, it was somebody so much like you, you wouldn't believe it. So now the double has taken the next step. He's come to Pelham's club and assumed his identity. Harry is played by Jan Arvan. He had a long career in television, including playing Judas Iscariot in the 1952 television series The Living Bible. He appears in episodes of Bewitched, The Flying Nun, The Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible, Batman, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Girl from Uncle, Get Smart, Honey West, and so on. We will see him again, but not until the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, Nothing Ever Happens in Linvale. Jan Arvin died in 1979 at the age of 66. There is some commentary I will get to a little bit later that points out that there are pairs everywhere throughout this episode. One pair not mentioned in that commentary is a pair of bartenders. The first one actually gets some lines and a name when Dr. Harley says, The usual, right? He's played by Norman Willis, who we've actually seen before in the very first episode, Revenge, but whom I didn't talk about, so let's rectify that. Norman Willis seems to be an actor who started mainly in westerns in the 1930s moving on to television in the 1950s and 60s, where he again mainly played in westerns. But he is also in John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath, Mighty Joe Young, and Zombies of the Stratosphere. He's in four total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and this is his second appearance, as I said. In Revenge, he was one of the police officers, specifically the one having this chat with Francis Bavier. Did you hear anything? Any call for help or scream? Anything like that? No, no, not a thing. But it must have been before she took the cake out because it was burned. In his four episodes, he never gets to play a character who actually gets a name. We'll see him again just two episodes down the line in episode 12, Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid, in which he plays, according to IMDb, Man with Toy Plane. Norman Willis died in 1988 at the age of 84. I don't know who the second bartender is. IMDb seems to think he's Richard Collier, but the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion says that Richard Collier is the tie salesman, and I think they're correct. So we'll get to Richard Collier a little bit later. But while we're on the matter of confusion over which roles some actors play, Tim Graham, whom we saw in last episode, The Long Shot, as the bartender, is supposed to be in this episode as well. IMDb lists him as lawyer, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists him as the man. I have looked very carefully through this episode, and I can't find him anywhere. But let's assume he's there somewhere, because this is Tim's second and last appearance. So I certainly hope in his last appearance, he actually has an appearance. We've taken a deep dive into some actor tracking here. So let's get back to the story. At this point, Pelham calls home to tell his servant, Peterson, that he won't be home for dinner. Hello, this is Mr. Pelham. No, I do not want to talk to Mr. Pelham. I am. Suddenly I realized that he thought I was home, that this, this person was there in my apartment. 
Okay, we're going to have to do another quick actor dive. Peterson is played by Justice Watson. Justice Watson had a short career in the 50s, playing in a number of television shows, including Studio One, Tales of Tomorrow, One Step Beyond, and so on. We will see him again two episodes from now, along with Norman Willis in Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid. Justice Watson died in 1962 at the young age of 54. Having realized that Peterson thinks he's home, Pelham races home. Peterson has told him that when he came home, he let himself in. So Pelham goes to look for his spare key, but the spare key is still there. I don't mind saying this rather upset me, but a moment later, it was just as if I had come in earlier before going out for the evening, changed my collar and tie, and I was still wearing my own tie. They were identical, the same make, the same amount of wear. But I had never bought a duplicate. I don't know if detachable collars were still a thing in 1955, or if this makes Pelham unusual. So the anxiety is getting ramped up. This is what the narrator in the Hitch 20 segment all about this episode refers to as a great study in Hitchcock's palette of worry. Here's what John P. Hess of FilmmakerIQ.com says about that, also in the Hitch 20 segment. What are the tools that an actor uses to create that sympathy, to create that connection between us, the audience, and the actor on screen? And I think that the answer to this is his amount of worrying he does. He does a lot of worrying, and he vocalizes a lot. He's always like, oh, you know, should I call the police? I don't know. Uh, there's this guy following me around. You know, I'm gonna... He even goes to the movies to take his mind off of things. He's, he's constantly worried. And we as an audience, we don't understand what's going on ourselves, we can identify with that worry. On the other hand, again, according to the narrator in Hitch 20, the comic aspect of Tom Ewell takes some of the pressure off. Here's what he has to say. You'll notice that when Pelham reacts to events, his face is almost in pantomime. This exaggeration lightens the fear of the situation and allows us to have fun. At the same time, this comic energy helps us develop empathy for a rather mundane character. All right, Pelham has the lock changed and only one key to it made. Even so, he can't rid himself of the dread that goes along with this whole experience. I thought of the police, of course. But what good could they do? Besides, he hadn't done anything. Moreover, I'd begun to have the feeling that there was something more than a purely human agency involved in this. That or... That's a really interesting moment. That or... He stops. So what is the alternative to there being something more than a purely human agency involved in this? That or... I've gone completely insane. Which is within the realm of possibility, at least at this point. Pelham returns to his office where he's been away for a while because of the stress of his situation, and he discovers that he hasn't been away at all. Here are the letters you dictated this morning, Mr. Pelham. Well, I'm glad you felt better and came in. Dear, is it coming back? Is anything wrong? No, I think I'll be all right, Miss Clement. Thank you. Is there anything I could get you? Uh, no, no, I'll be fine. 
he'll be fine. So he covers up, and as far as anyone can tell, the two Mr. Pelhams are one Mr. Pelham. Kay Stewart plays Miss Clement. She had a long career from the 1930s to the 1970s, beginning as a student in the film Freshman Year and finishing as Martha Quinion in a Charlie's Angels episode. Along the way, she played a cigarette girl in Nanochka and a slave girl in Spartacus. She's in five total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and she'll be back in episode 17, The Older Sister. Kay Stewart died in 2002 at the age of 82. There's a second secretary in the office who gets no lines, only types. But she is played by Diane Brewster, who is mainly known for playing the schoolteacher Miss Canfield in Leave it to Beaver, also in the 1983 TV movie Still the Beaver, and in the 1983-86 to TV series The New Leave it to Beaver. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Diane Brewster died in 1991 at the age of 60. Now, having mentioned that there were actually two secretaries, perhaps this is a good time to bring in Forrest Day Jr., filmmaker and critic, also from the Hitch 20 segment. If you notice, um, in all the backgrounds, there are pairs of things. The lights on the wall are in pairs. The chairs are in pairs. There's two water goblets on the table. The paintings are pairs. You'll see in his office as he walks in, two secretaries typing on two typewriters, two file cabinets, two paintings on the wall. And let's not forget two different bartenders at different times at the club. Also, let's remember that with all these pairs going on, after he's changed the locks, there is only one key. Let's get back to Pelham and those letters. They were good letters. They were all right. They dealt efficiently with various details of my work, and not only that, although I had not dictated them, they were my letters, not only in phraseology and in style, but in knowledge of what I had to do. So, I signed them. Signing the letters not only lends legitimacy to the double, but it makes Pelham complicit in the double's takeover of his life. There's no fight against this. He acknowledges that they are the letters he would have written. But in doing so, he increases his own irrelevancy. Pelham heads home and lets himself in using the one key, and he finds Peterson nowhere about. Peterson! Peterson! Are you here? Didn't I just hear you come in, sir? Of course I just came in. But when did you go out? Go out? Peterson. What is the matter with you? Where's my supper? But you ate it, sir. Don't you remember? Remember? How could I when I just came in? Peterson. But, but look, sir. Just look. I left the dishes, sir. Don't you remember when you asked for the last half bottle of the claret? Peterson, when you let me in, did you... Did you... But you let yourself in, sir. Don't you remember any of it? Oh, yes. I mean, when I was having supper, Peterson, did you... happen to notice how I looked? Or anything unusual? No, sir. You seemed all right then, sir. As a matter of fact, quite gay. Your quip about the taxi driver was most humorous. 
Oh, yes. Well, good night. Again, you can see Pelham lending legitimacy to the double. And in fact, essentially resigning his position to the double. This is also the scene that is usually cited as the most Hitchcockian of the episode. Here is William C. Martell, author of Hitchcock Experiments in Terror, again from the Hitch 20 segment. Earlier in the show, uh, we've seen uh, Pelham tell Dr. Harley that he's changed the locks in his flat and there's only one key. When he goes into his flat and we find out from his servant that the fake Pelham had been in there, how do we show that he's thinking there's only one key? How they do this is we have a close-up of Pelham pulling the key out of his pocket and touching it. And then we go back to Pelham's face. That is brain key, brain key, brain key. We're showing thought process on screen through a shot. Jack Seabrook at Bare Bones E-Zine further notes that this recalls a similar shot in Hitchcock's Notorious, in which Ingrid Bergman is hiding a key from Claude Rains and allows the viewer to get a glimpse of what the character is thinking about without interrupting the flow of dialogue. So what does this key business mean exactly? There should be only one key. So how does the double get in? Is Pelham completely insane? Has he been coming and going as the double, using that one key? That's certainly what Pelham is thinking. I had finally faced something which I suppose had been disturbing me all the time. And before I talked to the police and to anyone, I wanted to talk to you, to someone like you. You see, what I need to know is, could a man actually be in one place, doing one thing, and still in his mind be elsewhere, doing something else, but so vividly, with such detail, that this is the real, the living part of his life to him, do you think? Well, let us say something of that nature is possible, Pelham, but under extreme circumstances, now, when your double was doing these things, were you doing whatever it was with people you knew? Now, last night, for instance, when you went to the movie while he came home and ate your supper, were you with anyone you know? No, <laughs> but I remember the picture, and it, it's the one that's running at that theater. I, I, I looked it up this morning. Well, do you feel he's deliberately doing these things to cause you trouble, to upset you? No. I don't think he's trying to persecute me, Doctor. In fact, I can think of no reason at all for him to do what he's doing. I have the feeling that he's trying to... to move into my life, to crowd closer and closer to me, so that one day he is where I was, standing in my shoes, my clothes, my life, and I am gone. So Pelham is not looking at this as a hostile takeover. I don't think he's persecuting me, doctor, he says. He then says, I can think of no reason at all for him to do what he's doing. He's just moving into Pelham's life. So it's more like a natural process, a natural progression, or rather a supernatural progression. And it's at this point that the episode ceases to be a flashback, where we've been reliant on Pelham's word for everything that's happened, and we now move forward in real time into brave new territory. Now, according to John P. Hess of FilmmakerIQ.com and the narrator, in Hitch 20. A psychiatrist is an interesting character. He has absolutely zero effect on the plot. You could take that character out and the plot would have happened exactly as it would if he was in it. His job 
is to get us, the viewer, up to speed on what's going on. The psychologist also serves as a sort of barometer for the audience to gauge whether Pelham is hallucinating or if things really are as they seem. And I have to say that I completely disagree with that. The psychiatrist is not there to get you up to speed. There's no need for flashbacks at all. You just start the story with Pelham at the beginning and you proceed along. So that's not why the psychiatrist is there. The psychiatrist is there because he is crucial to the plot. He is the one who suggests that Pelham change something about himself to try to trip up the double. It seems pretty clear this double is a real person. You're pretty much a creature of routine, aren't you? Regular habits, same kind of clothes, that sort of thing. Oh, I suppose I am. Yeah, I've always liked to feel dependable. So you see, he could match your dress and manner and so forth pretty well by watching you, and has. So chances are he's up to something. I could vary my routine some. Different hours, amusement, clothes, that sort of thing. <laughs> Maybe buy a loud tie. I, I normally only wear this kind. Sounds like a good idea. Of course, Pelham could decide on his own to change his tie, but by making the psychiatrist give him this instruction, it puts a professional stamp on the entire idea, which is what Pelham has been seeking and what Pelham respects. So Pelham goes to carry out his plan of getting a new tie. He's not very enthusiastic about it, but he's following doctor's orders. Now this is an exclusive model and no two alike. You won't see another. Yes. I suppose that's more like it. The tie salesman, I believe, is Richard Collier. Richard Collier is another busy actor of the time. He's in Blazing Saddles and Hello, Dolly. He was Otto Puffendorfer in the Batman 66 TV show. He's in Snow White and the Three Stooges. He plays four different characters in four different episodes of Dennis the Menace and more. We'll see him again in episode number 34, The Hidden Thing. Richard Collier died in 2000 at the age of 80. While we're at it, let's finish up with the actors by mentioning that according to IMDb and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, John Compton plays a character named Vincent. This is a character I cannot find. Also according to IMDb, he appears next in episode 33, The Belfry. So maybe we'll actually find him in that episode. After buying his loud tie, Pelham comes back to his office where he discovers that his double has again done work. And worse yet, his double is using his new signature, the signature that he created to throw his double off. Overwrought by all this, he decides to call home and talk to Peterson. Hello? Uh, Peterson, I... Who's this? This is Mr. Pelham. Whom did you wish to speak to? No, you're not. I'm... Is Peterson there? My man? Are you a friend of his? I've told him he's not supposed to be called on my telephone. But if it's important, I... Never mind. It, it's not important. I, I just called to tell him I won't be home until late tonight. Perhaps not at all. Sorry to have bothered you. So even in this situation, Pelham is not able to confront his double directly. But then he does hurry home, and the two Mr. Pelhams meet. Oh, so there you are. I didn't think you'd have the gall to... Don't go away, Peterson. Perhaps you've noticed I've been upset the last few days. Well, this is the cause. He actually... No, Peterson, he's the imposter. I'm, I'm me. 
Can't you see? Can't you tell? It's true. I've never seen two as alike in all my life. There's a very nice split-screen, pre-digital shot of the two Mr. Pelhams together. So here we are. We're no longer in a flashback, reliant on Mr. Pelham's word. And we have another character, Peterson, seeing them both together. Does this make the supernatural element real? Or can we still assume that all of this is inside Mr. Pelham's mind? There's a resemblance, of course. But it's perfectly simple, really. You see, he's made a bad mistake. Look at that tie he's wearing. Did you ever see me in a tie like that? Sir, that's the truth. You haven't got one like it. What's more, you wouldn't buy one. And there's our twist. No explanation to the supernatural element, but the very thing that Pelham has done to make him stand out has made him stand out the wrong way. Still, Pelham searches for an explanation. Why? Why did this have to happen to me? Why? No reason. It just did. You see, I've known for several days that there's an agency more than human here. Tell me, what is it? Whom do you represent? Who are you? Why, Mr. Pelham, of course. You're mad, you know. So it just happened. There's no reason for it. Mr. Pelham's double represents no one other than Mr. Pelham. But at the end, we get what Donald Spoto calls the stare of madness, this time with a crooked half-smile, as the original Mr. Pelham, following instructions, as usual, accommodates his double and goes mad. That might seem to be the end of it, but there is a coda to the story. You know, I was thinking the other day, the way things have been going, you must be in the millionaire bracket by now. Oh, possibly. By the way, do you think I seem to have changed any since I started to get ahead? Oh, you seem to have sort of taken hold of things more is all. Maybe that wretched experience you had a year or so ago. You know, when that fellow who was trying to impersonate you went out of his mind right in front of you. Perhaps that sort of settled you down or something. Take a grip on things. You know, he was amazingly like you, wasn't he? Yes. Poor fellow. He's been put away ever since, you know. I don't think he'll ever be right again. So if you judge by financial worth and acumen in business, the new Mr. Pelham is a better Mr. Pelham than the old Mr. Pelham, emphasizing his comment earlier that he represented Mr. Pelham. It's also worth noting that apparently the original Mr. Pelham is in an insane asylum somewhere. So again, that seems to dispel the notion that this was all in Pelham's mind and that some supernatural event has taken place here. And finally, if you look very carefully, as the scene is fading at the end of the episode, we have a shot of Mr. Pelham shooting pool, leaning in. He looks very sober, and then just as it's getting dark, there's a little wisp of a satisfied smile. 
Now this odd little story may seem unusual, but it's actually in a long tradition going back thousands of years. This is from LiteraryDevices.net. In literature, a doppelganger is usually shaped as a twin, shadow, or a mirror image of a protagonist. It refers to a character who physically resembles the protagonist and may have the same name as well. Several types of doppelganger can be spotted in world literature. It may take the form of an evil twin, not known to the actual person, who confuses people related to that original person. You can go back to mythology and find doppelgangers. One early example that combines mythology and literature is in Euripides' play Helen, in which we learn that the real Helen was never in Troy at all and was whisked away by the gods to Egypt, and that the Helen in Troy was a phantom lookalike that disappears to nothing when Menelaus comes to Egypt to claim his wife. The Gothic author E.T.A. Hoffman wrote more than one story about doppelgangers. His early novel, The Devil's Elixir, featured two doubles pursuing each other. In that story, a man murders the brother and stepmother of his beloved, but his doppelganger is the one that's sentenced to death for the crimes. He liberates his double, only to have the doppelganger murder his beloved. If this sounds a little bit like Frankenstein, it is. In Frankenstein, the doctor creates his doppelganger, essentially. They each end up destroying each other's beloved, and they pursue each other until one of them is dead. It's interesting to note that in popular culture, the monster became known by many people as Frankenstein. Dostoevsky's story, The Double, deals with a double trying to take over the original's life, leading to the original going mad and being dragged off to an asylum. So that sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is from Doppelgangers in Fiction by Plu Marie Eatwell on thebookseller.com. Since Victorian times, the double in Western literature has tended to symbolize an internal Freudian psychodrama taking place within the principal character, as opposed to a confrontation between external forces. The doppelganger therefore becomes a projection of the hero's unconscious desire, his or her own heart of darkness, the dramatization of an internal struggle against the social constraints within which the subject is required to operate. That explanation means we have to bring Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde into this as well. Not to mention Alexander Dumas' The Man in the Iron Mask and Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. And if you're bringing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in, you have to also bring in the book that is often cited as the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, and that is Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. Invariably, though, when you're dealing with such themes, you have to eventually come back to Edgar Allan Poe. In this case, it's his story, William Wilson. And in that story, there are two students that discover they have the same name and the same birth date. They're the same height. Poe says they're alike in general contour of person and outline of feature. And a rivalry develops between the two of them. In his rivalry, he might have been supposed actuated solely by a whimsical desire to thwart, astonish, or mortify myself, says one William Wilson of the other. The rivalry leads the other Wilson to start dressing like the narrator, walking like him, talking like him, just to annoy him. The narrator says, I cannot better describe the sensation which oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me at some epoch very long ago, some point of the past even infinitely remote. So it becomes a mythical thing, an eternal struggle. Whereas Pelham deals with two ties, two collars, two keys, William Wilson deals with a cloak. He says, the cloak that I had worn 
was of a rare description of fur. How rare, how extravagantly costly, I shall not venture to say. Its fashion, too, was of my own fantastic invention, for I was fastidious to an absurd degree of coxcombry in matters of this frivolous nature. When, therefore, Mr. Preston reached me, that which he had picked up upon the floor and near the folding doors of the apartment, it was with an astonishment nearly bordering upon terror that I perceived my own already hanging in my arm where I had no doubt unwittingly placed it, and that the one presented me was but its exactly counterpart in every and even the minutest possible particular. The narrator, William, perhaps because of this rivalry, becomes more debauched and more criminal, and all of his schemes are thwarted by his double, until finally he murders his double. Right after that, he comes upon a mirror. Reflected in the mirror, he seems to see his double rather than himself, and his double speaks to him, saying, You have conquered, and I yield. Yet henceforward art thou also dead, dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and in my death see by this image, which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. And so it is within that tradition that Anthony Armstrong writes the short story, The Case of Mr. Pelham. Anthony Armstrong was born George Anthony Armstrong Willis, and he began writing for Punch magazine in 1924 using the initials AA. He was a novelist and a playwright. He contributed to the screenplay for Hitchcock's 1937 film Young and Innocent, and he was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 1944. This is the only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents adapted from one of his works. Now, I found the story in an old issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, the June 1955 issue. In the introduction, the editors write, We are deeply grateful to Mrs. Alfred G. Park of Coldwater, Michigan, for calling to our attention Anthony Armstrong's The Case of Mr. Pelham. Somehow we missed this story when it first appeared in Esquire in 1940. That's the November 1940 issue of Esquire, to be precise. And that would have meant a positive loss to readers of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, for the tale of Mr. Pelham and his double is one of the most fascinating we have read on the double theme since Roy Vickers' classic Double Image. First of all, I had to put in that Coldwater, Michigan reference because my old college roommate lives in Coldwater. Hi, Gary. But secondly, before we get into the case of Mr. Pelham, Let's veer off and take a look at Double Image by Roy Vickers. In that story, Julian Fanshawe starts to see his double. It turns out that he was a twin, but the other died when they were babies. Or did he? Eventually, it appears that the double is stepping into his life, impersonating him at different times with his wife and with his Uncle Ernest. Then Uncle Ernest is killed, apparently by the double. The police doubt that the double even exists, they say, we can't charge Fanshawe as a principal because we can't prove that the twin or double has no existence. Equally, he could not be charged as accessory, principal unknown, because there is not evidence that the two men ever met or communicated with each other. So is there a twin, or did Julian plan an elaborate murder? I'm not going to tell. Go check out the story for yourself. Let's get back to Anthony Armstrong's story of the case of Mr. Pelham. The first notable difference, as we had with Dorothy Sayers' suspicion leading into Hitchcock's Our Cook's a Treasure, is that the story takes place in England, and it begins with one doozy of a sentence. The very first intimation that Mr. Pelham received, the, as it were, tiny wind ripple that so lightly brushes a field of wheat, but is nevertheless the unrecognized herald of a devastating storm, 
occurred at about 6 o'clock on Tuesday evening, the 20th of May, halfway along Corn Hill. Things are much the same as in the Hitchcock episode. There is an interesting detail, which is that Mr. Pelham has eyes of slightly different colors, one bluish-brown, one hazel. As time goes on, it appears to people that meet the double that he seems fitter than the original Mr. Pelham. When it comes to the letters, Pelham decides, moreover, they were good letters. With one exception, they took just the line he would have followed. The exception was a particularly bold decision, brilliant but a gamble. Mr. Pelham would have toyed wistfully with the idea, but in the end would probably not have acted on it, though even that was faintly possible. So here in the story, Pelham is fading away while the double is taking on more substance, partly because the double has the gumption to seize the day, which Pelham does not. When Pelham finds the checks signed with his new signature, he realizes that his double is more than his double. It was at that moment that Mr. Pelham realized for the first time that everything which had happened up to that afternoon might have had some normal explanation, impossible though it seemed to discover it. To this last incident, however, there was no explanation unless, unless it was one that involved something more than purely human agency. So now we come to the confrontation between the two Mr. Pelhams. And whereas in the episode, the duplicate Mr. Pelham advocates just as Mr. Pelham, here, Mr. Pelham notes, from him as he stood there, he experienced a sudden wave of malignancy, of horrible power, of something that was not, after all, human for all its outward shape. And it carried the terror with it in wave after wave, a veritable physical presence battering down his resolve. So that at the end, when Mr. Pelham asks him, why have you done all this to me? The double says, at last, I am here. I have your business, and what I shall make of that, I alone know, as you may have noticed. I shall be free, free to do what I, but that won't interest you, he broke off. You're mad, you know, he said suddenly with an edge to his voice. Tears were suddenly streaming down Mr. Pelham's face. I don't believe this is real. It must be a dream. Why has this happened to me? It just happened, said the other, and all the evil of the world was in his voice. Then abruptly in Mr. Pelham's own tones, now I'm calling Peterson again, and we're going to give you in charge for impersonation. So there's that whole element that creeps in of evil, of the double being in some way a malignancy that we really don't see in the TV episode. Now this isn't the first adaptation of Armstrong's short story. On October 30, 1948, it appeared on the BBC. It appeared again on the BBC on November 17, 1955, just a couple of weeks before this episode airs. I don't know anything about either of those productions. Armstrong went on to convert the short story into a novel, The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham, reminiscent of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I haven't read the novel, but I did watch The Man Who Haunted Himself, the 1970 adaptation starring Roger Moore. Listen, just tell me the name. What name? What are you talking about? Is it blackmail? Get out of here! Oh, listen You're to me. Not. I have a wife and two kids, and I want to know what's behind all this. First of all, there is the possibility, though ever unlikely, that there is an actual double dog in your footsteps. Could there be another explanation? There could. All these times I've been coming here. You don't remember? If you want other women, you can have them. Eve, I don't want other women. Well, you certainly don't want me. How many times do I have to tell you I've never seen her? 
is it? Your name may be Pelham, but I am Harold Pelham of Freeman, Pelham and Dawson. I'm Pelham. I am! There's actually an odd little explanation to all this in the film. Pelham is in an auto accident. He dies on the operating table, which lets his double out. But then he comes back to life. He's resuscitated, thereby making two of them. Figure that out if you can. IndieWire.com has a page of 20 films about doubles and doppelgangers. And the man who haunted himself is included in there. And they say that the film is a prime example of a doppelganger film that gets so entangled in its premise that it has a hard time finding a way out. Let's look at a few more radio and television doppelganger stories appearing both before and after this episode. On March 22, 1946, Mole Mystery Theater presented a story called Alibi for Murder. In it, a drifter, Dave Whitman, is hired by a gangster, Steve Yeager, because he is the gangster's exact double. Dave's job is to hang out at Steve's club for all to see, providing an alibi for Steve so he can go off and murder his rivals. But Steve's girlfriend, Lorraine, notices a difference, and she falls in love with Dave. It eventually leads to a confrontation in which Steve, now wearing Dave's drifter clothes, plans to kill Dave and Lorraine and his good friend Doc, all in a scheme to start a new life as Dave Whitman. But it immediately goes wrong. Steve. Bad. Doc wasn't a bad guy. You ain't kidding, Mac. What? Doc was the best. Louie. Eyes front and drop the gun. Don't be crazy, Louie. Take that rod out of my back. Drop it, I said. I don't know what you're doing, Louie. Shut up and turn around so I can look at you. All right, you satisfied it's me? Steve. And another Steve over there. Am I seeing double or something? Of course you're not seeing double. I'm Steve Yeager. This guy's just a hobo. I don't know. I'd say you look more like the hobo in them clothes. Louie, don't be stupid. I'm Steve, I tell you. Look at me. Yeah, yeah, Louie, look at us. Good. I'm all mixed up. Now, it's simple, Louie. It's just a shakedown. He found out he looked like me, killed a couple of people, and then tried to blackmail me. He's lying, Louie. I'm Steve Yeager. If he was Steve Yeager, would he shoot Doc Kinsella, his best friend? No. No, I guess he wouldn't. Louie, he's trying to confuse you. Look, they're my credentials on the table. Oh, Louie, they're my credentials. I just told you he was trying to shake me down. I want to be sure. I wouldn't want to pull this trigger on the wrong guy. You'll be pulling it on the wrong guy if you kill me. Wait a second, Louis. You know whose girl Lorraine is, don't you? Sure, everybody knows that. She's Steve Jager's girl. Then ask her which one of us she loves. It's a trick, a dirty, rotten trick. Ah, oh. oh, that wasn't very smart, him trying to rush my gun. Gosh, I didn't want to kill a guy. But, well, you saw for yourself, Steve. He was grabbing for my gun was either him or me. We've got to get out of here quick before the police come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we better get out of here. You go ahead, Louis. A few things i got to clean up here. Yeah, okay, boy. Quick, lock the door. Right. Good. Now then. What are you doing, Dave? The only thing we can do. I'm calling the police. In 1952, Tales of Tomorrow broadcast an episode entitled The Duplicates, starring Darren McGavin, directed by Don Medford. You may recall that Don Medford directed Darren McGavin in the Hitchcock episode Triggers in Leash. This episode had a very interesting premise. I ask you to believe whatever is told you, no matter how startling. Mm -hmm. In the last two years, science has discovered that life does exist on another planet in this universe, life as we know it here. 
I'm afraid I don't understand. I'm telling you that there's another planet where human life functions as it does here. So closely parallel that for every living thing existing here, there's an exact duplicate on this other planet. Uh, wait a minute, you mean other human beings living as we do? More than that. For every particle of life, animal, bird, flower, tree, living here, there's an identical creature living on this other planet. It gets weirder. We build a ship, Bruce. A very special ship to carry but one man to that other planet. Now, this ship has been tested and will travel through space. Oh, I see. You want me to make that trip. You want me to be your little traveler through space, huh? No, thanks. You'll be perfectly safe. The ship is automatically controlled. It can be accomplished in a few hours. I said, no, you know what you're asking me to do? You would arrive in a city just like this. Your home would be there. A woman who would seem in every respect to be your wife would be waiting. You'd have a short mission at this house, and then you'd return to this planet. What would be the point of a flight like this? A very simple one. The exact duplication of mankind must be stopped. Immediately, neatly, and without warning. And if it's not? Then, sooner or later, both planets will destroy themselves in trying to conquer the other. We must take the initiative and break this pattern of exact duplication as soon as possible. How? Ah. On your trip, you'll take with you a chemical poison. You'll place it in your duplicate's home in something he will eventually eat or drink. Then you'll simply return here. He'll die. You'll live. Once the pattern is broken, our future is secure. And then comes the kicker. There's a hectic world with it, Francis. A lot of crazy things happen. But if the government of my country picks me for an important job, I'm going to carry it out. Well, is it, is it something dangerous? Dangerous? No, no, not at all. All I can tell you is this. Future life here on Jupiter depends on the success of my mission. So Bruce, who is from Jupiter, flies down to Earth, apparently in one night. He goes to the duplicate house where his duplicate wife is, and he puts the poison in a bottle of whiskey, and then he slips back to Jupiter. When he gets home on Jupiter, he has himself a congratulatory glass of whiskey from the same bottle, and then he talks to his wife. You see, honey, that's why I've been away for the last 24 hours. Oh, but Bruce, you forgot. You were here last night. Uh-oh. His duplicate came from Earth and did the same thing he did, and Bruce has already had a glass of whiskey. It's a completely crazy story, and I love it. Rod Serling explored the notion of doubles in two Twilight Zone episodes. The first was the very well-known Mirror Image, starring Vera Miles and Martin Milner. I remember reading it somewhere. Each of us has a twin in this other world. An identical twin. Maybe that woman I saw. Millicent, there's another explanation. There has to be. One that comes with more reason. other woman my counterpart forget about it please don't think about it and then there's the lesser known the parallel starring steve forrest in which an astronaut lands on a parallel earth everything seems pretty much the same but there are slight differences some delusions some distortions 
Like that fence outside the house. I don't remember it. And yet you said it had been there when we bought the house. And that business with Bill Conacher. He told me he'd called you before the flight. He made it a point to tell me. And then afterward, afterward, he said there'd been no such phone conversation. It's unimportant. It's insignificant, really. And yet... And yet it all seems to be part of some sort of crazy pattern. And there are other non-Surling Twilight Zone episodes that come to mind, such as Spur of the Moment. I keep seeing her again and again, keep seeing myself again and again on that day, that one particular day. You know the expression, go chase yourself. Well, that's what I've been doing, chasing myself. In his image. Who am I? You're nobody, Alan. Nobody at all. Stop it, Walter. Well, who is this watch I'm wearing? Ask me that. Who is the refrigerator in the kitchen? And Death Ship, in which three astronauts come upon a crashed spaceship that appears to have their dead bodies inside of it. That was us in there. We're dead. The opening episode of the 1985 Twilight Zone series was entitled Shatterday, starring Bruce Willis, based on a short story by Harlan Ellison. Damn. What? Dialed the number I know best instead of Jamie's office. I dialed my own number. Did you ever do that? Hello? Yeah, I'm sorry. I must have dialed the wrong number. What number did you want? Klondike 5, 6189. This is Klondike 5, 6189. Who are you calling? Nah, I must have dialed wrong. This can't be Klondike 5, 6189. Yeah, that's the number you've reached. Who did you want? Wasn't calling anybody at this number. Wait a minute. Are you sure this is Klondike 5, 6189? <laughs> I think I know my own number, pal. Who are you? Peter Novins. Who are you? I'm Peter Novins. Again, there's no real explanation for it, but there is this line from Ellison's short story. It was a wonder anyone managed to stay sane, stay whole in such surroundings. Living in cubicles, boxed and trapped and throttled, was it any surprise that people began to fall apart even as he seemed to be falling apart? And let's not forget Star Trek with two evil double episodes. The Enemy Within, written by science fiction and Twilight Zone writer Richard Matheson, where Kirk is split into a good Kirk and an evil Kirk, the ultimate evil twin story. And Mirror Mirror, written by Jerome Bixby, the author of the short story It's a Good Life, which Rod Serling adapted into one of the more famous Twilight Zones, in which the Enterprise encounters an entire parallel universe of evil Enterprise and Federation people. And then there's the alien who impersonates Bert on the 80s comedy Soap. Can't forget that. And let's top all this off by mentioning a website called twinstrangers.net that will attempt to match you up with your unknown identical twin. All right, so there's lots of doppelgangers out there. But isn't this rather an unusual topic for Hitchcock? 
Well, no, not at all. There are plenty of doubles in Hitchcock's films, going back to what is considered his very first film, that is, the first one he completed where he was the sole director, The Pleasure Garden, a 1925 silent film, so there's no clips for this one. And in that film, there are two chorus girls, Patsy and Jill, who look alike and initially share a room, even sleeping in the same bed together. But their lives go off in different directions. Jill dumps her fiancé, Hugh, while Patsy makes a bad decision in marrying Hugh's colleague, Levitt. Near the end, Hugh, sick with fever, mistakes Patsy for Jill, and the two of them eventually end up together. One of Hitchcock's steady themes is the man falsely accused. You see it in The 39 Steps and Young and Innocent. It eventually leads to The Wrong Man, in which the man is falsely accused because he looks almost exactly like the man who actually committed the crime. In Shadow of a Doubt, you have a doppelganger situation between young Charlie and Uncle Charlie. Vertigo, of course, is filled with the whole notion of doubles. In North by Northwest, Cary Grant's Roger Thornhill is mistaken for a man who doesn't even exist, George Kaplan. But even though Kaplan doesn't exist, we actually get this line from Roger Thornhill. Now she seemed to think I'm Kaplan. I wonder if I look like Kaplan. In The Dark Side of Genius, Donald Spoto calls Mr. Pelham perhaps the single most typically Hitchcockian television program. He says Pelham fuses the established Hitchcock theme of the double with the terror of madness and enclosure as the inevitable result of the loss of security. In his article, The Outer Circle, Hitchcock on Television, which appears in the book Hitchcock Centenary Essays, Thomas Lech notes, as long ago as 1957, Eric Romer and Claude Chabral identified the leading Hitchcock theme as the transfer of guilt between a criminal and a technically innocent, though morally complicit, double somehow involved in the crime. But Lech also adds, often, however, the doubling of criminal and innocent in Hitchcock's television films is transformed by the fact that no crime is ever committed. I recently stumbled on an article in a 2014 issue of the Quarterly Review of Film and Video entitled The Televisual Hitchcockian Object and Domestic Space in Alfred Hitchcock Presents by Kurt Hersey. He argues that Hitchcock's utilization of objects in his television narratives differs markedly from his use of filmic objects. Each domestic episode includes an object linked to its setting, a domestic object. The domestic object's function with the narrative varies between episodes, but these objects all contain a link to home and family. Some of these objects take on deadly quality and actually become lethal. And within this, Hersey ties these objects in with a condemnation of commercialism, which then ties in with Hitchcock's criticisms of the sponsor. Of Revenge, the very first episode, Hersey says, even the cake begins as a consumerist dream. That's the cake that burns and is thrown out because Elsa has been raped while it's been cooking. Of Breakdown, Hersey says, while driving, Kalu is shown in close-up with the driving wheel in the foreground. Now his head is wedged between the wheel and his seat. Kalu's convertible provides him with mobility and power, but ultimately paralyzes and traps him. Being behind the wheel suddenly shifts from control to helplessness. The consumer product has turned against him. And what of Mr. Pelham? Well, the object that Hersey focuses on is the key, which was meant to provide access to domestic space, suddenly confirms the unnatural and horrifying scenario when the double produces his own copy. At least we presume he does. He gets in somehow. 
And then there's this. There are close-ups of the taillights. That's from the episode One More Mile to Go. The steering wheel. That's from Breakdown. And the door key. These close-ups taking place late in the narratives do not convey desire. Instead, the shots express the helplessness felt by the doomed characters, their original object of desire, which of course never satisfies, and now carries a horrific quality, traps them. Television is inseparably linked to consumerism through advertisements, Hersey says. I don't necessarily agree with all that, but I find it an intriguing argument, so I'd like to get back to this article the next time we have a Hitchcock-directed episode. And speaking of the Hitchcock-directed episode, it's time to welcome back Amy Cantu. So hi, Amy. Hi, Al. How are you Glad, doing? Good. Glad to be here. Okay. Good to see you. So what would you think of this one? So I'm just comparing the two that I've seen directed by Hitchcock. Yes. And it felt in some respects like it was a much simpler, more straightforward kind of a direction. And I didn't see quite as much of Hitchcock in there other than in a few key moments. But Like what? Well, there's a scene where, did you notice in the scene right at the beginning when he sits down at the bar, he looks in the camera. And I guess he's looking in the mirror behind the bar, so he's looking at himself. It was jolting. It, it was a weird little moment. Like, he looks right at the camera. Tom this Ewell. This is when he's sitting at the bar. Right at the beginning. Ah, okay. No, I didn't notice yeah, that. Yeah, that, that, that was, I noticed it right away and thought, okay, that was weird. Because he looks right at the camera when the doctor comes in and they say, let's sit in that table over there. They look right at the camera Okay, at that see, point. I missed that one. Yeah. All right, so that's the thing. There were a couple of scenes, and just in terms of the camera work, there was a really great pullback when he's sitting with the doctor in the restaurant, and that it goes from the front of the, I'm not the restaurant, the bar, the club? What yeah, is the that? Bar, it's like a restaurant at a club, private yeah. club. It was pretty tight, not a ton of inserts, but a few significant ones. There were some things about Hitchcock that you're just kind of moving along and wondering what it's like to be this guy in this situation. The buildup of the tension and the kind of stress, it was similar in some respects to breakdown. It's somewhat static, but not. You're wondering what's going to happen, and it's it's just sort of how would it be to live this kind of horrible life. Did you like it? I did. And it was very unfancy. There were no significant female characters, and we can talk about that later. Yes. But I did. Yeah, I okay. liked it. Did you like the ending? Well, so here's the thing about that. Sometimes Hitchcock doesn't really care what the truth is or what the ending is. I mean, I don't know. Was this Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Was this a pod person or was this just another human being assuming his life? We don't really know. I'm not sure that it went one way or the other. And I don't even know that Hitchcock really cared to do that. He's more interested in the process than the result. It's the same thing with breakdowns. It's almost a what if. What if you were in this situation? How awful would it be for you? Think about that. And then, of course, we do sort of wonder in breakdown, okay, is he going to get buried alive? I mean, that's a big deal at the end. Yeah. But in this one, it kind of ended the way I thought it was going to. The bad guy wins and takes over. But I don't know where he came from or why he did it. There's no motive we don't explore any of that. We just wonder how awful it would be to have right. somebody do that to you in your life. That's right. tension. That's that driving tension that seems to fascinate Hitchcock, and I like that about him. Yeah, know? yeah. So, and you, did you like the ending? 
Yeah, I do. I'm not sure I did the first time I saw it. You do almost feel like there's going to be some sort of payoff here as to what's going on. Right. And then there isn't. But once you get past that, yeah. And I'm not so sure that the guy who ends up taking over is the bad guy. No, that's you true. Know? I mean, it depends on how you want to view things. In terms, clearly at the end of the episode, in terms of business acumen and wealth, he's doing much better than the other guy did. I know, but he's cold-blooded and <laughs> he's, he's not a nice guy. Yeah, and, probably um, not. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he does say he does say at the end, is there do you notice any change about me? And the other guy says, no, not really, you know, right. which might be a commentary in and of itself. Well, and that was a big deal in uh, Breakdown, too. I mean, he was a successful businessman who was an asshole. And That's right. he had his... So I think there's, you know, a comment there. Yeah. You know, the little guy loses or, you know, if you have emotions... Good luck with that. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good point. I mean, one of the things I've been looking at with it is that the guy who we think of as the real Mr. Pelham concedes constantly. He gives in all the time. Yes, he you does. Know, he essentially lets the guy walk into his life and take over. The one thing that he does, well, he does two things where he tries to fight back. Neither one of them works, and one of them actually hangs him right. where he wears the different tie. Yep. The first one is to get the lock changed and get one key which seems to not make any difference. But other than that, he comes in, you know, there are these moments where he comes into his office and the secretary says, oh, here's the letters you dictated. And he looks at him and goes, oh, they're my letters. And he signs them, you know. He just, like, gives in to everything the other guy is doing. Right. When he comes home and Peterson says, you had dinner, and here's the dishes, he says, oh, right, okay. Right, like he doesn't want (laughs) to admit that maybe, but, you know, that's also maybe he doesn't want to admit that he's kind of, falling apart that he's going nuts but he also i agree with you in a couple other ways doesn't he say two or three times i know i could have called the police and maybe yeah. i should have but right I didn't. those sorts of things yeah. yeah he never fights back besides those two things plus he has lunch with the psychiatrist right so do you think he has gone mad or do you think it's just all supernatural or what i didn't know I, honestly i was able to feel satisfied at the ending not knowing which it was. I was almost glad that there wasn't an attempt to make it either, you know, a supernatural or a person. But he does say a couple of times, doesn't he? I forgot the word he used, but he says, I did feel like there was some something. What was the word he used? I think it's more than human agency or yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's the one. That's yeah. what he says. So I think we're supposed to think that. And it's pretty clear when they showed the two people in the same scene and the manservant seeing them that, okay, it isn't him just breaking down and being mentally ill. There's supposed to be a second person. Yeah. And whether it's supernatural or real, mm-hmm. it's, I think we were supposed to go that far. But why? We have no motive. No, there's no motive. No, no, not even like, okay, and aliens are taking over the earth. But when did – let me ask you this. Wasn't the first invasion of the body snatchers right around this time? Yeah. Was the it first movie is, I think, right after this. I think it's 1956. This is 1955. But it's based on a Jack Finney novel. And I'm not sure when he wrote that. I think probably in the early 50s. So I think that the novel may precede this episode. But also, this is based on the story. And I don't know, do they yes. do they attempt? Can you tell me? I don't know anything yeah, about Yeah, I read the story. The story came out in 1940. And the story is very similar. The difference in the story which I'm really glad that they didn't do in this episode, is that there's a hint that the Mr. Pelham that's taking over may be some sort of evil force. 
I can't remember the exact wording in the story, but it's like he has this evil glint in his eye or whatever. Okay. And I think he actually even says something that implies that it's like some sort of evil takeover. And in this, when Pelham says, why is this happening? The new Mr. Pelham says, it just did. And then when he says, who do you represent? He says, why Mr. Pelham? There may be some supernatural agency here, but it's not directed as any sort of evil force or anything. It's just something that happened, which I like much better. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look at the story again, but it's not really over the top, but there is sort of that sense in there, Yeah. which I didn't really much care for. Well, I mean, you're evil if you take over someone's life, no matter what. There is obviously a whole history going back thousands of years of doppelganger stories. Yes. And so this one just sort of fits right in there. And there's various reasons why doppelgangers appear, or oftentimes there's no particular given reason. Right. So it's really sort of part of this tradition that the body snatchers is part of to some extent, and then it continues on. I mean, you've got doppelganger stories today, so... Well, so that it taps into something. Right. Breakdown, we talked about, taps into a really clear fear of premature burial sort of thing. Right. This taps into something else. I'm not entirely sure what it is because I don't think that we're all going around worrying that some double is going to take over our lives. But it has something to do, I think, with our insecurity of self. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a split personality issue. And yeah. Hitchcock explores that and vertigo and psycho. I mean, it isn't something he... This isn't new. And I mean, it clearly, Tamuel's character is struggling, wondering through the whole thing, am I going crazy? Am I yes. going crazy? And yeah. it's, I'm not sure that, that uh, the psychologist helped him out much. <laughs> no, he actually, you know, he does, he, he's the cause of the downfall. He is. Because he's the guy that suggests you do time. something different. But, um, but yeah, you're right about Hitchcock. You know, I wasn't really all that keyed into that when I first watched this. It, at first, it feels like kind of an unusual episode for Hitchcock to direct. Yeah. But then when you look at his stuff, as you said, Vertigo and Psycho, and it's much more than that. It's just like The Wrong Man. Yep. You know, yep, yep. those sorts of right. stories. There's things like Shadow of a Doubt. Yep. And I even discovered that the very first film that Hitchcock is credited as being sole director of a silent film called The Pleasure Gardens deals with these two women that look very much alike. So it's all through his career. Right. And rather than this being something that is unusual for him to direct, it's perfect for him to direct. It is. It is. Comparing it to the first film of this uh, series that he directed, Revenge, on the surface it seems to have less emotional heft and psychology, but I actually think the lack of people in his life, the lack of women. He doesn't even go to a bar where there are women. We don't know anything about him, really. That's He's true. He's very emotionally and psychologically uninteresting, Yeah. except for true. his anxiety about what's going on right then and there with him. And he doesn't have anybody at home. There's not, they could have even had the manservant could have been female. It could have been a housekeeper. Yep. But he's lacking something, and I think that's part of what the problem is. You're right. When he sits down with the psychiatrist, at the very beginning, he describes himself. Yeah. And he describes himself in this really nondescript, <laughs> sort of bland... He's boring. Yeah, happy. right, exactly. <laughs> and there is a moment when he's talking to the psychiatrist where he's saying, you know, is it possible that I could be doing one thing and thinking I'm doing something else? And he's talking about when yeah. he went to the movies, and the psychiatrist says, well, did you go to the movies with anybody? No. 
Right. Went by myself. Right. And so, yes, he's he's very solitary. And I will say this, though. He sweats well. He, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was sweating and he was nervous and he was uncomfortable and he was very everyman again. You know, he's yeah. really kind of a boring guy yeah. that this is happening to. And you're yeah. right. So in some respects, the one who wins, the version is more successful and more interesting in a way, but also more evil. Evil is maybe a little heavy, just cold-blooded. Yeah, well, I like that. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I guess I got so into the whole notion that Pelham is weak and sort of gives in that I didn't really see the other guy as being cold-blooded. But you're right, he's very, in that final scene, actually in the scene where he confronts they confront each other. It's really cold. He's also, he's very cold and he's very... Two things, I don't know if you notice, and I might be imagining this, but in that scene, the guy on the left, the mean takeover guy, yeah. is bigger. He's he's standing up taller, but ah. he just, he, he appears just a physically slightly bigger. And it's also that classic, there's a kind of a menacing sort of feel about him in him standing taller and being seeming a little bit bigger. I don't know. I didn't notice that, but uh, I think that's a good observation. I bet that's so. In the story, there are moments like when Peterson says to him, how fit and healthy you looked, not like you look now, you know? Right, So it's like the other is getting fit and stronger, and the mural Mr. Pelham is getting weaker. And there's a story by Harlan Ellison called Shatterday that they made into a Twilight Zone episode in the 1980s Twilight Zone has Bruce Willis in it. And it's another one of these double sort of stories. Yeah, this felt very Twilight zone Yeah. It really did. Yeah. Anyway, in that, the guy who takes over, it's the reverse of this. He's a guy who who is humane and so on, while the other guy is this sort of nasty, you know, he's forgotten what life should be all about. Okay. And when they meet each other at the end, the guy who was the real guy fades away. He just disappears right. at the end. So, you know, that doesn't happen here, but it is sort of that in the story, as I said, this Mr. Pelham seems healthier and this one doesn't seem fit. So, yeah, maybe, you know, there is a thing about the guy in the left looking bigger than the guy in the right. You can't ever underestimate Hitchcock either. He's not going to just let something go or throw something out there. There's a reason that we don't know the ending, even though it essentially feels like the bad guy won. You so know, what do you think the reason is? Let, let me go back to one thing. I think, based on what I just said, that it's not a mistake that he looked at the camera when he was supposed to be looking in the mirror behind the bar. I mean, that's looking at myself. There's all sorts of suggestions there. And it's sort of acting for, the, for film 101 that you don't do. Yeah. You don't accidentally look at the camera. You right. only deliberately look in the camera. So maybe it really has to go back to what you said. Maybe there, maybe Hitchcock is implying that there's an evil force or that people can be evil is all. And now that you've got me thinking along these lines, I have no idea if Hitchcock would have intended anything like this at all. But there could be a commentary, as you said, like with Breakdown, that there has to be like this cold-bloodedness or this inhumanity or there is this cold-bloodedness and inhumanity in people that therefore get ahead as like CEOs or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any sort of socialist message here. But no. it is interesting that the guy who really excels and is now must be a millionaire or whatever right. Tom Mason says about right. him at the end 
is the more cold-blooded guy. Right, and our main character has broken down. I mean, it's again, it's a breakdown. Yes. He's yeah. broken down, and you show your weakness, and whoop, you're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> when the Pelhams confront each other, and the one says to him, you're mad, you know, he sort of looks at the camera then, too, and gets this sort of glazed look on his face. And once again, it's sort of being hit by that frozen glare of horror that shows up in a lot of Hitchcock stuff. Yeah, and there's some other menacing angles and looks like I mean I was struck at the end when they're playing pool yeah and he leans toward the camera it's very yes. menacing it's very okay I don't like this guy I went back and I looked at that like frame by frame very carefully because I think as it's fading out he also gets sort of this kind of evil grin on his face mm -hmm. but it's so quick it's yeah. hard to see it yeah, yeah yeah so yeah I mean once again there's like a look Yep. And, you know, you can see that in a number of different right. Hitchcock things. You're right. The um, other thing, too, is that if you think about it, it's pretty claustrophobic. There's no outside scenes. They're all true. inside. They're inside the bar or they're crowded at the table at the end or, or in his office. You're right. That's a good point. There isn't any outside shot. Is there? I don't he, think they so. talk about him going to the he movie. He talks about being outside. He comes outside. in from the outside at the beginning. But he tells a story about running into a guy outside, but you don't see it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's all in the club, in his office, and in his apartment. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, interesting. The more we're talking about this, the more I think it's a pretty good pretty good show. Yeah. <laughs> Hitchcock knows how to take a really simple thing that's deceptively simple on screen, deceptively simply shot, yeah. acted. This is a really kind of straightforward production. But later on, you realize that he's exploring these really disturbing things that we think about in these little bits of psyche that just even explored in a tiny little way is enough to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. That's all he wants to do is just right. make you uncomfortable. And, and he succeeds at it. I did notice in the intro that Hitchcock apologizes for nobody dying in the show. I'm sorry, this is... He's basically saying this might be kind of boring, but there are fates worse than death. Yes. Which I mean, is he, the same thing with Breakdown. Right. He pretty much does tell you at the beginning that while there's no overt murder here, this might be one of the most unsettling things you've watched. Yeah, and it is. Um, and then what about the, the outro of the thing, his conclusion? Oh, yeah, when he gets carried away <laughs> again. <laughs> to me, is just having fun. Yeah, but that, yeah. That well, that, that's sort but of. But he gets shot, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a murder. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I th did we cover it all? I think we may think have. We have. Do you have something else? Nope. So thanks again, Amy, for coming in. I really appreciate it. You always come up with something that, even though I feel like I'm just picking these things to pieces, you always come up with something that I haven't thought of. And I love particularly the thing about the look at the very beginning at the bar, because I didn't notice that at all. And also the feeling that the guy on the left is larger than the guy on the right. Yeah, and I, I like might be wrong too. about both of those, but... Uh. Well, even if you are, they're still great. All right. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> it's fun. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> See you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye-bye. Well, Amy and I referred to Hitchcock's outro for this episode, which is generally considered to be one of his best. So why don't we get to that? It begins with Hitchcock being carted away by two men in white coats. And you'll note that the Hitchcock that is being carted away is wearing a loud tie. 
but I'm Alfred Hitchcock. I am. I can prove it. Sure, sure. Everybody is. I am. I insist. The camera pans left, where we find another Hitchcock looking on, this one without a loud tie. An astounding hoax. He carried off the impersonation brilliantly, except for one thing. Bubble gum in his pocket, indeed. Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't be caught dead with a bubble gum in his pocket. Poor chap. For excuse me, I need a moment to pull myself together. That's as far as the DVD version of the episode goes. It moves right into the music from there. But Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion have more. According to them, after Hitchcock says, I need a moment to pull myself together, he then says, meanwhile, listen closely to this suggestion, which brings on the commercial break. And just a couple more things before we get to that. First of all, I don't think I mentioned Francis Cockrell anywhere in this podcast. We've dealt with him before. He's already written the teleplay for more than one Hitchcock episode. But he is the teleplay writer here, and I think he does an excellent job converting Anthony Armstrong's short story into this episode. We'll see him again plenty more next time in episode number 14, A Bullet for Baldwin. Now, just because we've already done a podcast of an episode doesn't mean we're necessarily finished with it, particularly if I find something new that's worth passing along. In this case, I recently stumbled on an episode of the Suspense radio program from September 1st, 1949, starring Gregory Peck, an episode entitled Nightmare. And as I listened to it, it started to sound very familiar. Gregory Peck stars as Ben. His wife, Elsa, has recently had a nervous breakdown, and he has a son named Stevie. They head out on vacation, and their car runs out of gas. Ben leaves Elsa and Stevie at the car, to go get some gasoline. When he comes back, he discovers that Stevie is dead, killed by a drunk driver. Elsa is in hysterics. He got out of his car and he offered me a drink. He stood there and he said, you better take a drink. Oh, there's the royal coachman, that roadhouse. And he said he was sorry. We'll stop here and use the phone. There's a Sam Crawford in Fallstown. He runs some tourist house and a funeral chapel. I'll call him from here. Yes. Oh... See all the lights. Why are all the lights on? It's a roadhouse, Elsa. So many people going in. Why are they laughing? Well, they don't know how we feel, Elsa. They don't know about us. Is it all right to leave you here for a moment? I, I, I want a call. There he is. Would you like me to... Elsa. That's him. He killed us. Who? That's him. Who? The one, the one who hit Stevie? Where? There he is. Where? That one? The man standing in the doorway? How do you know? Can you see his face? He came over and he stood close and he said, you better take a drink. So Ben goes into the roadhouse and he ends up killing the man that Elsa has identified. And then, of course, later... Now I have no son. Well, this is Sam Crawford, Elsa. He's going to take care of Stevie. And we're going to sleep in his house tonight. I think we need some sleep, don't you? That's him. What do you mean? That's him. He did it. He did what? He killed my son. Elsa. I'm Sammy Crawford, ma'am. I run the local... He killed us. He killed us. Elsa. But this version of the story doesn't want to leave us with such an awful ending. So it turns out that the title, Nightmare, is literal. Ben. Ben. Ben, darling. Ben. Huh? What? What? Oh. 
Dad. Oh. Hi. Hello, Stevie. Hi. Darling, what on earth? You were dreaming something. <laughs> Moaning and great racking. I, uh... <laughs> It was a nightmare. And another variation on the story that eventually became the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And speaking of finding something new that's worth passing along, three things have crossed my radar in the five days since I originally put this episode to bed. First of all, I read John Collier's story, The Love Connoisseur. And in that story... A man sits in a Monte Carlo casino looking at a young woman he immediately decides he must have. Shortly after he sees her, a man joins her, and that man is a spitting image of him. I'll leave it at that for anyone who wants to read that story. John Collier, by the way, is someone we'll see later on in the series. He's involved in seven episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, either as the short story writer upon which the story is based or as the teleplay writer. His first will be episode 23, Back for Christmas, which also happens to be Alfred Hitchcock's next directing stint on the series. The second thing that happened in the last five days is that I saw Jordan Peele's film Us, which is the doppelganger story to end all doppelganger stories. Jordan Peele, as I'm sure you know, is the creative force behind the new Twilight Zone. So it's appropriate that Us reverberates with Twilight Zone a little bit, First of all, from this question and in his image. Who am I? Leading to this question in us. What are you people? And then this realization in Death Ship. It was us in there. Leading to this realization in us. It's us. I don't want to say any more about us, except that I thought it was brilliant. And I recommend you see it, if you haven't already. The third thing was an email that Amy Cantu sent me in which she said that our conversation inspired her to look up what the word Pelham means. And she discovered that one definition is a horse bit. She quoted this from Wikipedia. In this respect, a Pelham bit functions similar to a double bridle, and like a double bridle, it normally has double reins. I suspect Anthony Armstrong knew that definition when he named his character Mr. Pelham. So thank you, Amy, for bringing that up. I think that's pretty cool. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD, which includes Revenge and the Case of Mr. Pelham, The Seven-Year Itch, The Twilight Zone Season 1, containing Mirror Image, The Twilight Zone Season 4, containing The Parallel, and North by Northwest are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Hitch 20 series, The Man Who Haunted Himself, various Groucho Marx You Bet Your Life episodes, the Tales of Tomorrow episode The Duplicates, the Mole Mystery Theater episode Alibi for Murder, and the Suspense episode Nightmare are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D. S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. You can also leave me a review on iTunes. I recently received a very nice review on iTunes from Musketeer Dad, who said, among other things, to be somewhat crude, when the podcast is over, it feels like Al has given it a thorough colonoscopy. Nothing remains hidden from sight. Musketeer Dad also points out that because of its thoroughness, the podcast is not for everyone. 
which I freely admit. What can I say, Musketeer Dad? This is the way I roll. It's a sickness. I can't help it. But I hope if you're listening to this, any of you out there, and you've gotten this far, then you roll a little bit this way yourself. Next time, episode 11, Guilty Witness, starring Judith Evelyn, Kathleen McGuire, and Joseph Mantell. Now, if we had the rest of the outro, quoted by Martin Grams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, I would play it here. Instead, I'm going to have to read it. You know, I believe commercials are improving every day. Next week, we hope to have another one equally fascinating. And, if time permits, we shall bring you another story.